remain seated. Um, every every Sunday is different because life is unpredictable, and this Sunday is no different. Um, I have a just a, a heavy heart this morning for uh, the the Quinn family, and I want to share with our church. Um, We'll have a season of prayer after, so our sermon today will probably be shorter. Um, but you know that Rick lost his mom, and we've been praying for her salvation for nearly two years as she was diagnosed with cancer. We've been praying for his son, Ricky, who's been in and out of prison most of his adult life, um, struggled with addictions. dad uh, I can't understand, really understand, put my mind where Rick is right now but his um, his son was found this morning body weeps, we weep with the body of Christ. C.S. Lewis said that God is calling all of us. We just need to listen. And sometimes God uses the megaphone of pain to call us. Because life is but a vapor that appears for a short time and then vanishes away. And none of us are promised tomorrow. And it's by God's grace that he is long-suffering, not willing that anybody should perish, but that all should come to repentance. A.W. Tozer is one of my favorite authors, and um, he talks about the sovereignty of God. And I think he has a biblical understanding of sovereignty. And sovereignty doesn't mean that God decrees every evil act, every evil thought, every temptation. God is not tempted with evil, neither does he tempt anyone. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust. And God in his sovereignty doesn't make our choices, but God chose in his sovereignty that we would be free to make them. And in his sovereignty, he has determined what those choices would result in. And Paul, when he was speaking at Athens, he said, God who made the world and everything in it. That's our sovereign God. He's made everything. He holds it all in his hand as Caleb said this morning, and that is a fear, a reverence for this God. Since 
he is creator of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples made by hands. We don't need to come to a building to find God. In fact, God has written eternity in man's heart so that men would seek the Lord. There's a, a vacuum, there's a shape in every one of us that says there is a creator. There is a purpose beyond this life that give it, gives it meaning. And so God doesn't dwell in physical places. He's not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need our offerings this morning, does he? He doesn't need our music. He doesn't need any of it. But he delights in the fact that we come to worship him of our own free wills. Because that's what he wants. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. He's the creator of all of it. Every nation. We've all come from Adam. We've all come descended from Noah. And God has determined their pre-appointed times and his sovereignty. He knows that nations are going to rise and nations are going to fall. And he determines when those are going to happen. You just read the Old Testament, and he says, I'm raising up a nation, the Babylonians. And why does God do all these things? Again, it's not because God's manipulating our hearts or our wills or our decisions or our choices. God predetermines these things. And even the boundaries of our dwelling, it is so that men should seek the Lord. This is what God wants. He wants us to seek the Lord. And that we might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. All it takes is a heart that turns to the Lord, and there he is in our life. When Paul finished that message in Athens, the bed of philosophy and paganism and every religion possible. In fact, the entire city given over to idolatry. So many different shrines. 18 different temples to 18 different goddesses. Even had the inscription to the unknown God in case they didn't know who he was. And Paul says, I'll tell you who he is. He's the creator. And he wants to have a relationship with you. And when he ended that, it says that some mocked. That was their choice. They were the determiner of their destiny by their choice, not God. They mocked. However, some said, we will hear you again on this matter. There was an openness Yes, some of the things you're saying is resonating truth with us, they said. And others believed, among whom of them was Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So it behooves us to be sharing the gospel, doesn't it? Because it is a matter of life and death. Um, and as a church, um, 
I think God is, is molding us to be a people of prayer, to be a people that empathizes and people a people that, that genuinely loves and cares about our flock and, 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 and brothers and sisters. And, and as your pastor and your, your shepherd this morning, um, the best way that I think I can equip you is equip you with the gospel so that you can share that effectively with people around you, our friends and our families. Because it is, it is a matter of eternity. And in the world, we're going to have tribulation. There's going to be heartache. There's going to be sorrow. Jesus was a man of sorrow. Jesus was acquainted with grief. He was a man that felt our pain. He felt our loneliness. He grieved with those who grieved. He was no stranger to what you and I experience. And that's, that's the difference between Christianity. Christianity is not some kind of panacea that says, I will solve all your problems. In fact, when Paul left the Galatian churches, he said, through many tribulation, you must enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's not just this wealth, health, prosperity gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Christ came to seek and to save that which is lost and that those who are sick are the ones who need the physicians and he didn't come to call the self-righteous he came to call sinners to repentance to metanoia to change their mind about who God is about the effects and the devastation of sin and the Galatian church had been robbed of that precious truth about what the gospel really is. And in the passage that we're going to look at today, Paul says, you were running well. The word well means you were running nobly, you were running with a genuine heart, and you were running with purity. It's interesting that he uses the parable of leaven that mixed in with that purity. And the gospel is this message that just unveils and strips away all pretense of self-righteousness. All hopes that I will one day merit somehow salvation or that my good works will outweigh my bad works. And the pure gospel, the genuineness of the gospel says that you have absolutely nothing. You are poor in spirit. You are a mourner because of the grief of your sin and you are meek and gentle and lowly. And those are the ones who inherit the earth. Those who are the ones who are comforted. Those are the ones who have the kingdom of heaven. And that's the way we start the Christian walk. We start it with abject humility before God. As a pauper who owns nothing, who has nothing, who has nothing to give to a king. And we say, God, I am spiritually empty and bankrupt. And when we come to that point, 
Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Paul writes the Galatians, and he says, that's the way you started running your race, with this genuine, pure humility in heart. And that's the way you came to God. And then he says, who hindered you? Who is it that came in and cut in on you? He's using the illustration of a runner here, running the Christian life, moving along in grace alone, walking with God in faith alone, growing in the power of the gospel by the Spirit of Christ alone. Oh, foolish Galatians, he says in chapter 3, who bewitched you from obeying the truth? I want to ask you, Galatians, how did you start running this Christian race? And you were running well. Did you run this race? And did you begin this race by the hearing of faith or by the works of the law? Now keep running the race the same way. Herein is the gospel. From faith to faith. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. And Paul said, I am not ashamed of that gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation, deliverance, no longer slaves to the basic elements of the world, no longer slaves to religion. And the Galatian churches were filled with religion. And he called them weak and beggarly elements. And now people were trying to put Judaism on them. And he calls them the basic elements of the world. They were physical and you You've walked away from the spiritual essence of who Christ is, how you grow in Christ, and how you walk and live the Christian life. We're a spiritual family, and we discern spiritual things by the Holy Spirit. And this book is a spiritual book. When we come to this Bible and we read it, we're not reading a textbook. We're reading a life book. This is a living book. It is breathing. It is God's breath to you and I. And that's the way we started the Christian life. We have been born again, not by corruptible seed, but by incorruptible seed, by the word of God that lives and abides forever. And that's the way we need to run this this Christian race. And so Paul says, who stepped in and hindered you from obeying the truth? And it's so easy to get distracted, isn't it? It's so easy to say, well, I did my devotions today, or whatever, and think you did your spiritual bit. And Paul says, this persuasion doesn't come from the one who called you and whoever troubles you. He's going to bear the brunt of it. But this persuasion... The persuasion that you've got to add human thinking, human logic, man-made merit, that doesn't, that doesn't come from the one who called you. It's interesting the way he describes God there, isn't it? He describes God as the one who calls. God is a person. God is a, a personality that we can know. He is... a a spiritual being. And Paul is reminding them when he uses that phrase, I'm, this persuasion doesn't come from the one who called you. 
Because in the beginning of this letter, he says, I marvel that you are so soon removing yourself from the one who called you. You see, God is the one who calls us into a relationship. And earlier in this letter, he says, God gives us the spirit of the Father in our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So it's not just a religion that we're moving ourselves from, that Paul marvels that, that, that they were running well and somebody hindered them, but you've moved yourself from this relationship of a God who calls you. And then the warning about the gospel. The gospel is always under siege. The gospel is always under attack. Even evangelical Christians unwittingly are attacking the gospel. Some are making it this licentious gospel that says, come to Jesus and you will get whatever you want, whatever you need, and you don't have to change your life. You don't have to repent. All you have to do is just ask Jesus to come into your heart and you get to go to heaven. That's a perversion of the gospel that Jesus taught. Jesus taught this in John chapter 12. He says, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, unless I lose my life, I will not find it. Now, that's not work salvation. That is faith, that I believe that Jesus is almighty divine God. And I believe him that I will give him and I will surrender my life to him because he is God and I trust him. Trust, that's what faith ultimately means. It means to trust, it means to adhere to, it means to totally rely on. That's what faith is. Faith is the substance. Hupostasis is the Greek word. It means a foundation. Hope of the thing, faith is the substance of things. Hope. It's the evidence and that's the Greek word pragmatos, where we get pragmatic. And a pragmatist is some that one says, does it work? Faith is the evidence of things not seen. And, and that's what the Galatians started out their Christian life with. And now they were told that if you will do this and you will do that, then you will have your salvation. And Paul says, you're adding just a little bit of leaven. So a little bit of leaven and taking grace and perverting grace is just a bit of leaven that perverts the true gospel. And then there's the other extreme on evangelical Christianity that says you've got to promise God all of your future life to him, otherwise you're not saved. That's not, that's not the gospel either. The gospel is simply admitting that I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. And I want to walk away from my sin in order to follow Jesus. I can't have both of them. Jesus said this, no man can serve two masters. You can't say that I believe in Christ and also continue to worship idols. The Thessalonians turned from idols to serve the true and living God. But Paul didn't tell them, now you've got a promise that you're never going to go back into an idol temple. You're never going to ever think about the things that you used to think about. None of us could ever pledge any of those kind of things to God. Because that's work salvation. I don't have to keep myself saved by the way I perform. 
But genuine salvation and genuine faith will transform you and I so that we desire to pursue after God. And so there's, there's all kinds of things that, that have worked their way in, just like a little bit of leaven. And Satan wants to attack the gospel. That's what he hates. He hates the good news. And he will do anything to change it. And the leaven in the book of Galatians is this pseudo-religion. It's a, a, a leaven of, of external merit. And that was the leaven that the Galatians were introduced to. And Jesus calls it the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the scribes. And he says that kind of leaven that looks good on the outside really is nothing more than hypocrisy. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 1, there was an innumerable people coming together and they trampled together. And Jesus began to warn them. And he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And the Galatians, that's what they were starting to lean toward, this leaven of hypocrisy. Legalism spreads to everything else. It changes the way you view others. It changes the way you view yourself. And that's why it's described as leaven here. It's a little bit of leaven. And all it takes to permeate the entire Christian life is when you start relying on merit and you start re relying on works, you're no longer relying on Jesus alone. That's what salvation is, really, isn't it? It's I'm relying on Christ alone, period, full stop. That's salvation. And you add anything other than Jesus alone that you're trusting in, it's no longer the gospel. A little bit of leaven. What else are we trusting in? We are trusting in the promises of God. Period. Nothing else. And if you add a little bit of leaven, promises plus performance, promise plus if I do this, then you have changed the Christian life. And a little bit of leaven will permeate all of it. You add a little bit of merit, a little bit of what you deserve, and you take the Holy Spirit out. Jesus said this in John chapter 15. He says, I am the true vine. The one who abides in me and my words abide in you. You will ask what you will and my Father will do it. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. And you add a little bit of leaven where you're doing something and you just ask Jesus to exit. And that's the danger of leaven that's being introduced to the Galatians and also to our lives if we're not careful. The Holy Spirit guides us. The Holy Spirit is the one who matures us. Rituals and religion can never do that. The last thing I want to talk about, leaven. It's talked about leaven because what was happening to the Galatians was compromise. Compromise is very, very subtle. And Paul, in this passage, we can see that he didn't compromise. He didn't add just a bit of leaven. Paul could have 
he could have avoided all the persecution. He would have never been stoned. He would have never been beaten. If he would have just added a little bit of leaven. Yeah, you can, you can keep your idols and serve Jesus too. No. What happened at Ephesus? Demetrius, the one who made those idol shrines and those temples to Artemis. There was a riot in that city. Why? Because they were taking their idols and they were beating them into power, powder. They were taking their books on magic and witchcraft and they were burning them. Now, Paul could have avoided that entire riot if he would have added just a little bit of leaven and said, you know what, you can keep your sinful lifestyle and have Jesus too, but he didn't. He could have avoided the beatings of the Jews and their hatred. He could have avoided the riot in Jerusalem where he was arrested. If all he would have said is, yeah, Jesus plus circumcision. But he wouldn't do it. And so leaven really in this passage also implies the word and the idea of compromise. It's very, very subtle and it looks appealing to people, but the effect on the gospel is devastating. Now this is the, the first positive thing that Paul says about the Galatian church. It's been pretty negative up to this point, hasn't it? I mean... He hasn't held anything back. There was no beautiful introduction to the Galatian Christians. He doesn't talk about how they've got all these wonderful spiritual gifts or blessed be God who's given you every spiritual blessings in heavenly places or how that, that, that they were going through persecution like the Thessalonians were and, and I know your salvation. No, Galatians starts out right from the get-go saying, guys, I marvel. I, I, I'm dumbfounded that, that, that you're chasing this other gospel. Then he, he says, you guys are bewitched. And then he says, I'm like a mother who's, who's, who's trying to have birth pangs so that you guys are saved all over again. He says, I got doubts of you guys. But in this passage, we see a hint of Paul's positive perspective because he believes in his heart of hearts that these people are really regenerated. These people are really born again. And, and here's the warning for us today. We can be genuinely saved, but we can still get off on our Christian walk, can't we? We can run well for a while, but something can detract us. We can hear a persuasion that sounds really, really good. In fact, these persuaders were really good. In Galatians 4.17, he said that these persuaders were zealously courting them. They were enticing them. They were, they were like a boyfriend and girlfriend say, hey, come on over here. And so it can happen to all of us. These things can, can, can actually, good things can get us going the wrong direction. But Paul says here, I have confidence in you. But where does his confidence lie? Let's look at the passage and it'll tell us. It says, in Christo. It's in Christ. The case ending there in the original language means the means or the agent of Paul's confidence is the person of Jesus. He says, I know that Jesus is going to do something in your life. 
Paul says, I'm not confident in you guys, in your flesh. I'm not confident in your abilities. I am confident in God, what God will do. And you know what? As a shepherd, as a pastor, this is a wonderful passage. Because I am confident in my church. And this church is not my church. It's Christ's church, of course. I'm just nothing but an under-shepherd. But anyway, my point is, I am confident that this church is going to be what Christ wants it to be. Why? Because Christ is in you as your hope of glory. I don't have to come in here every Sunday and browbeat anybody or beat you over the head with a Bible. I am confident in the Lord that because that when God begins a work in you, Philippians 1.6, God is going to bring it to completion. And if any man is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away, and all things become new. And so Paul says, I am confidence, I have utmost confidence in you in the Lord. And another reason that we can have confidence that you are going to grow as a believer is because God has placed the Holy Spirit into your heart. And he's the one who teaches you. In 1 John... They had a different problem altogether. It wasn't legalism. It was another ism. It was Gnosticism. That was their problem. Another, another rabbit, another road you can go down to, and that's the road of thinking that all I need is knowledge. And that's just as bad as legalism. But this is what he wrote in 1 John. These things have I written unto you concerning those who seduce you. So there's always going to be those things that are going to be hitting us. The troublemakers in Galatia, the seducers in the churches at Ephesus where John was writing to. But the anointing which you have received from him, it remains in you. And you do not need that any man teaches you. But that same anointing teaches you all things and is the truth and is no lie, even as it has taught you and you shall abide in him. And so I'm sure Paul had that same thought. I am confident in the Lord because the Holy Spirit ultimately is their teacher and their guide. Christ is going to bring them to completion. God begins a good work in him, in us, and he's going to complete it. So small influences can have a profound effect on the way we run and live our Christian life. So let's kind of just summarize what it means to run well. To run well means that you're running nobly, the quality of genuineness in your heart, purity before God and purity of motives, and that you are trusting by faith alone in all that Christ has done for you. That's what it means to run well. Love, as we go down through this passage, as we continue to read it, and because this is all the same context, verse 14, for the law is fulfilled in one word, you guys want to go back to the law? Here's the law in one word. One saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So to run well is to fulfill the royal law of love. And nobody can write out a commandment of how that is to look. To run well, you've got to be guided by the Holy Spirit because you're going to face all kinds of situations or to love somebody in this situation is to call them out. 
and in another situation to love them. And the Holy Spirit is the only one who can guide you through these things. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will say, to love them is to hold my peace right now and not say anything. And you can't be given a law to dictate how to live those Christian lives like that. Paul says to run well is to run by the Holy Spirit guiding you with genuineness and purity and letting the Holy Spirit direct in all situations of life. Legalism, on the other hand, hinders us because what it does is it focuses on the out instead of the in. It focuses on what is physical, what can be seen, rather than the heart. And if you will clean up your heart and if you will direct your attention of correcting people's hearts, the externals, they seem to take care of themselves. And the incidentals of the externals, they seem to not even matter anymore anyway. So legalism can't do that. Truth matters. It cannot be compromised in the slightest way without diluting it. When Paul went back to Jerusalem and he took Titus with him, Galatians chapter 2, I, Paul says, I knew that there were some false brethren who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty in Christ to whom I did not yield to submission even for a minute in order that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. We cannot do anything to dilute the truth. Biblical convictions will bring persecution. Paul was no stranger to persecution. And he wrote Timothy, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so I think here in verses 11, 10, uh, 11 and 12, he is answering some accusations toward himself. Because it reads, and I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? So there must have been some kind of accusation that the Galatians knew that these troublemakers were saying about Paul. One thing that they were saying about Paul is that Paul used to speak and used to preach circumcision. Totally unfounded. And that he was still preaching circumcision. And so Paul re replies, he says, okay, I, 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 if I'm guilty of, of, of diluting this message, if I'm guilty of this leaven, then why am I being persecuted? The logical answer is, no, Paul, if you were introducing a little bit of legalism, the persecution would have ended. And then he gives a profound statement about the cross. If he adds just a little bit of leaven, if he says what people want to hear, then the offense of the cross has ceased. And this is where you and I are going to be persecuted. 
because the cross is so offensive, it is so politically incorrect, the cross is so, I don't even know what woke means, but the cross has got to be unwoke. <laughs> it, it can't have, it's so unpopular. Why is the cross so unpopular? Because the cross is calling out sin. Jesus died for sinners. The cross is an offense. The cross is stumbling because it says you must turn to Jesus alone. Jesus told Nicodemus this. He says, unless you are born again, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he was so confused on what that meant. He says, it's like the wind. You'll know when it happens. You can't see it. You don't know where it's going to come from, but God will do that work through the wind of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And to be lifted up on a cross for a Jewish person, what an offense. What a stumbling block. Because you only put blasphemers up on a gibbet, uh, <coughs> excuse me, on a cross to display this is what God looks on those who have blasphemed his name. And so Jesus Christ was our curse. And so the offense of the cross is that it points out sin. It points out that our sin had to be paid for. The offense of the cross says that there is absolutely no merit that can produce righteousness. For the Gentile thinker, why was it such an offense? Their gods were superheroes. They could do anything. They controlled the thunder. They controlled the oceans. And you're telling me that your Christian God looked like a servant, that your Christian God was spit upon, that your Christian God was mocked and ridiculed, and they put a crown of thorns on his head, and they slapped him in the face, and they said, prophesy to us if you're the king. That's what the Gentiles did to the king of kings. But it is the power of the cross unto salvation to everyone who believes. Radical Christianity doesn't go down the rut of legalism. Radical Christianity doesn't go down the rut of liberalism. Radical, radical Christianity loves Jesus Christ passionately. It listens to his voice. It is guided by the Holy Spirit. And it is filled with transforming power. That's the way we run the Christian life well. Deal drastically with any subversion from that. Paul's last thing in this paragraph, he says, I wish the ones who troubled you would emasculate themselves. That's literally the word that he uses. That's how serious this was to Paul. Why? A little bit of leaven prevents you and I from running the Christian life as I just described it. It perverts the truth from utter dependence on Christ to dependence on ourself. It diverts the power of the Holy Spirit 
to us trying to live out the Christian life in our own flesh. Our confidence must be in Christ alone, as Paul's was. And we can take, for, take, it, not, take it for granted that persecution is going to follow those who love the cross and who are out to please God rather than men. I want to finish with just a reminder from John 15, 20. Jesus said, remember this, the servant is not greater than his master. If they have persecuted me, they are going to persecute us. But let us not be ashamed of this pure gospel, and let's give it to people unleavened. It's Christ alone. It's grace alone. He does it all. And it's faith that imputes righteousness, complete righteousness, unmerited on the account of Christ's perfect life on our behalf. That's the gospel that we must be clear with. Father, God, I thank you that Paul was a warrior for truth. And God, we live in a culture in Utah where these truths couldn't be more applicable. Because God, we could fit in with anybody else in this culture if we wouldn't just be such sticklers that Jesus is divine. That Jesus took all of our transgressions and that Jesus buries our sin in the depths of the sea. And that by one sacrifice, we are perfected forever. And there's no second chances. It's appointed end of man once to die. And then the judgment. And our judgment will be based on the righteousness of Christ alone. God, we cannot dare change any of those things. So I pray, Father, that we would have a heavy heart for the lost. But God, that also we as a church at North Valley, that we would keep running well and that we wouldn't be hindered. And God, that we would be persuaded, that we would be confident in the Lord, that in this church we won't have any other mindedness, that God, there will be unity about this core doctrine of what the gospel is. God, I pray that we will defend it, but God, that also that we will give it with brokenness and loving hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.